This is Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 500. And the quote of the day is, successful and unsuccessful people do not vary greatly in their abilities. They vary in their desire to reach their potential. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming. And beyond, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. What's going on, everybody? It's here, episode 500. I cannot believe that we've done 500 of these episodes. And if you're just tuning in, this is your first episode you've ever listened to. Thanks so much. There's 500 of them in the archives that you can listen to for free. And if you've been listening for a long time, thank you so much for your continued support. I always appreciate all the support. And I really hope that you get value out of this, this podcast. And, uh, I think you do. So, but the great news is I'm also doing a huge giveaway for the five, 500th episode and we're giving away some dream symbols. We're giving away in-ear monitors from Ultimate Ears. We're giving away some rings from Big Fat Snare Drum, some heads from Evans and sticks from Promark and stuff from DW. There's some snare drums. There's some cowbells from LP. There's ProLogic's percussion pads. We got all kinds of stuff that we're giving away. And the easiest way for you to enter is to go to drummersresource.com forward slash giveaway. That's drummersresource.com forward slash giveaway. Enter your information. And in a few weeks, I will be announcing all of the winners and shipping out all of this great stuff to you guys. And that's just my way of saying thank you for listening to the podcast for so long. And also, I appreciate all the companies who have given me the gear to give away to you. So go to drummersresource.com forward slash giveaway, enter to win, and hopefully you'll win some amazing prizes. So let's get into this episode. This is with Nick DiVirgilio. And Nick has a really amazing story. He was He's originally from the LA area, grew up here, and uh, he's a multi-instrumentalist and Sort of came up through, you know, came up through the 80s in LA and started to build his network here and started a band called Spock's Beard, who I'm sure that you have heard of, and also was the drummer that was tapped to replace Phil Collins in Genesis. And we talk about all of these, all of the things that sort of led up to, to all of these things. And the interesting part is there was one sort of relationship, there's one catalyst that started all of this for him. And I think that's an important thing to to take note that. You never know what's going to happen or who you're going to meet when you're out there networking and going to gigs and going to shows and things like that. So it's super important. So we talk about that, but we talk about networking. And then he has recently moved to Indiana to work for Sweetwater, actually. And he's their in-house, he's their in-house studio drummer. And then does a lot of product demos and things like that. So we talk about that transition, his time in Cirque du Soleil. He has a really an amazing journey. And the best part is it's not over yet. He's continuing to write music. He's continuing to play. He's continuing to tour and still feels that his best work is still in him. And I believe that too. So let's not waste any more time. Let's get into it with Nick DiVirgilio. Nick, how are you, buddy? Thanks so much for doing this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So where, where you are right now, you're in Fort Wayne? Indiana? I'm in Fort I'm at the Sweetwater headquarters in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Yep. Nice. Nice. So let's re- I want to rewind a little bit because I knew you, you were born in Southern California though, right? Yeah, I'm born and raised in LA. That's my home. Um I've been I've been in Fort Wayne for almost five years now. Um, Got you. But uh LA, LA, even though I live here now, LA still seems to be home just because that's where I grew up, you know. Mm-hmm. Talk to me talk to me about growing up in LA. So you were born uh like at the end of the sixties, right? Like 69. Is that right? Six, 68. 68. Okay. So what, yeah. what was it like growing up in, in the LA area, uh, in, in the seventies for you? And like, cause I, I'm, I know that it's a different place now than it was then. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, really the, the bulk of everything, of everything for me growing up wise was the eighties. I mean, the seventies, I was a kid and we lived in the suburbs, you know, it was just, mm-hmm. it seemed like typical suburban life. Um, we, my, the town I lived in called Hacienda Heights is about 30, 35, 30 miles east of downtown LA. Mm-hmm. Took about a good 45 minutes to do it, to get to Hollywood and stuff. I did commercials and some movie pilots and stuff when I was a kid. So we would be driving out to LA constantly when I was in Hollywood and stuff when I was a kid. 
it was pretty normal. Played little league and golf and did all that kind of stuff. And uh, and then when the eighties came and I started getting out in the world a little bit and grew up in more and just started you know hanging out with all the other musicians. Um, it was a uh, it was a rocking good time where there's a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> right. When, <laughs> when did band you... days and all that kind of stuff it was nuts. When did you start playing drums? I started when I was four or five years old, so okay. really really young. Because what yeah, just, and I don't know if it's because you grew up in that area or you were just attracted to that stuff. So it seems like you were into music, you're into acting, you're into the arts. You were, I mean, you were always was like everyone in your family into that. Was that something that you sort of grew up with, or did you just have have an affinity towards it? Everybody loved music and had. I had a musical family. My brother was a guitar player. My dad was sort of a singer and pseudo entertainer. My mother played piano, and there was so there was music in the family but i was the only one to try to make a career out of it mm-hmm. you know took it to the next took it to the next level right right yeah. because i mean and it's i guess you're in the right spot to do it right <laughs> i mean yeah i mean if, it was there i mean that's the the entertainment business was there so yeah yeah for sure was there did it did it seem like everyone was trying to do what you were trying to do when you like to make it into a career like sure. friends of yours and all that well, some, a couple of friends of mine. It wasn't until, I mean, when I got out of high school, and went into music school, and I went to music school in L.A. at a place called the Dick Grove School of Music, mm-hmm. which is not there anymore. But it was uh, it was I think Daniel was Glass doing really well too. at the time. What's that? I think Daniel Glass went there as well. well a lot of players went there. Dave Garibaldi yeah. was my was my first drum teacher. He he was teaching there That's along amazing. with Luis Conte. They had a lot of great players, and the school did really well for a number of years. It just outgrew. It tried to grow and compete with Musicians Institute, I think, mm-hmm. a little bit too much, and it just couldn't. Uh, got bought a big new building, and it couldn't afford it after a while. Right, you know, that kind of thing. So was that was a percussion? Uh, was that a percussion only school, or was that no, no, no? Ever? It was a full. It was it was everything else. It was actually based around yeah. Dick Grove's composition program. He was a, a keyboard player and a compos- uh, yeah, composer, yeah. and made this really elaborate, hard composition uh, course. And that was the main thing. Got you. And okay. then it grew into everything else. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, when I got into music school and started just getting out into the world more and more, you, I quickly realized that there is just, you know, there's a lot of competition in that town, a lot of players, mm-hmm. a lot of everything. So, mm-hmm. you know. Do, do you think that w- that's a good thing or a bad thing for you? Well, it was a good thing. I mean, you, you realize where you sort of, at least you know, I, I quickly realized where I was the level I was at compared to everybody else I was hanging around with. Mm-hmm. I realized fast if I could keep up, you know, if I could sit in certain, in certain, sit in, sorry, in certain situations, if I was able to play, be at a certain level and, uh, you know, where I stood with the whole thing. So that was yeah. a good thing. Um, yeah, I think it's an know, eye opener when people move into a town and they were, they were the best drummer in their town or whatever it were, but they live in, you know, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and then they go to LA and there's, a hundred people that live on your block that are as good, if not better than you. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. What what were you going to say? No, no, that, that you, you, you summed it all up right there. (laughs) Yeah. I was reading your mind. That's right. Um, so, so after you get out of Dick, uh, Dick Grove school music, then, so this whole time you're thinking, I'm going to do this professionally. This is, this is the path I'm going to take. I'm going to do this as a career. Were there, were there other options that you were, that you were considering or were you like, no, this is the way that I want to go? Well, I always knew I wanted to play music for right. sure. I mean, golf, golf was a close second, but I wasn't as good as a, of a golfer as I was a, a musician and a drummer. Mm. I competed at a pretty high level all three through high school. My brother was trying to become a pro right. uh, for a while. And, um, and I still love playing. I would give up. I think I would actually give up music to play golf every day if I could make a living, but that's not going to happen. So um, really, Oh, I just love it. I just love being outside on the grass. There's just something about it. It's very zen. Yeah. I, I just yeah. totally dig it. I'm, um, I'm the same way with baseball. I always say that if I didn't, if I didn't work in music, oh, I would work in, in baseball. For sure. I'm a huge baseball fanatic. I'm a yeah. geek for, for baseball too. I'm the same way. <laughs> um, but I knew, I just knew that I had a natural ability with music and, um, that's just kind of, I knew that's where I wanted to at least try to go, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. And my parents were very supportive and uh, let me do whatever I wanted. just wanted me to go for it. And so I did. The the interesting thing, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, that if it's sort of a bummer, but if you, if you were the greatest golfer in the world, you would 
make like you would go through Q school and you would get onto the PGA tour and you, you know, you would win mm-hmm. in, in drumming. You can be the greatest drummer in the world. You know, like you could be, think, think about if like Bernard Purdy never just never made the right connections. You know, he would just right. be some guy who played drums in his basement or Jeff Picaro right. or Steve Gadd or any of these guys. That's the thing that, right. that's the thing that's always like sort of, irritated me about music versus sports is that if you, you know, if you can throw a 90 mile an hour fastball, somebody's going to pick you up. Somebody's sure. going to take a look at you. Yeah. You know, you can, yeah. With music, you, you, especially with golf, you know, you, you're just, it's you competing against, right. you're competing against other players, obviously, but it's just you and the course. So, um, but you know, to play music, you need other people. It's almost, it's very rare that a, a person can make a living just being a solo artist with nobody else. Mm-hmm. So you need you need that other the other flavors the other sounds and textures around you. So you got to learn how to deal with people and how to get gigs and how to, you know, market yourself and and to to schmooze and all of those things. It's all it's all part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, golf you could be that you could be just a, you know, a very quiet shy person not talk to anybody and you know and still win a golf tournament that kind of mm-hmm. thing. You know, mm-hmm. does it doesn't really you don't really need that aspect of of personality necessarily. You just need to know how to shoot under par so it's right. um being able to deal with people and to have a good attitude and all that kind of stuff is huge in uh in trying to be have a pro career as a musician did a lot of that stuff come naturally for you sort of the the networking and and the schmoozing and the and you know going yeah. out and, and building relationships and all that totally it to- yeah and i can't come yeah. from my dad my dad was a liquor salesman Got you. his whole life he started right. in bars when he was a young guy and that was sort of his rock and roll style. I mean, he, I would go out with him every once in a while and he would make his rounds to some bars and stuff before early on in his career, before he had his own company. And, you know, he was like a rock star. He would walk in, everybody knew him as he walked in the door and he, I mean, he schmoozed with everybody and he met a lot of people and he'd be in LA and Hollywood all the time. So that was his way of being an entertainer, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I am now all that, all that kind of stuff definitely rubbed off on me. Yeah. Um, what are some of the stuff? Just that, what had, are some of the things that you learned? Just how to talk to people, how to not be shy. You know, d- you know, don't really worry what people think of you, but don't be a dick at the same time. You got to just right. have the ride that middle ground and be respectful. But you know, uh, you know, and if you get a weird vibe, you know, being able to read people is a great thing. If someone doesn't want to talk to you, don't push the subject. You know, kind of play stand off a little bit. So mm-hmm. it's all just kind of sort of reading body language, all that kind of stuff comes with, comes with that. And I learned a lot about that too. You kind of get a vibe from people right away and you sort of just feel them out and then you kind of go, okay. And you know, you know what to, what path to take when you're trying to talk to them about something. So right. yeah, he right. taught me a lot as far as that's concerned. How do you, how do you suggest that people learn? Cause I hear that a lot that people are like, I know I need to go out to network and meet people and all that, but I don't know what to do or what to say or, or how to not come off like a dick or come off like I'm needy and I want something, you know, <laughs> right. Cause that's, I think that's well, the big you, mistake that most people make is like, they go out and it's sort of like, Hey, I, can you do something for me? Right. And it's like, well, well you know, it's, it, it's total trial and error, man. It's, you gotta be yourself and just don't be too pushy. And, uh, not every time it's going to work out great. You gotta just, it's, you know, it's, it's like anything else, really. Some sometimes it'll be just perfect, and the the person you're talking to or you're trying to schmooze with will will uh, give you back what you're trying to give, you know. And sometimes mm-hmm. they'll just be jerks and ignore you, and it's not working. So you know you got to take the good with the bad, and mm-hmm. and and put put in the time because man, let me tell you, I was out, you know, prior marriage and kids and all that kind of stuff. I was out every night. You know, right. if I wasn't doing a gig, I was out somewhere trying to meet or schmooze or sit in the jam sessions and all that kind of stuff. And some nights are great. And some nights are total crap. It just doesn't mm-hmm. ma- It's kind of, you never know. But the fact that you're out there is always teaching you something. Right. And, uh, you you learn how to deal with people the more you're in people's faces. So it's, it's, uh, it's just the total trial and error thing and just yeah. gotta be yourself and be nice, you know, be respectful. And if you're getting a vibe where someone doesn't want to talk at that point don't push the subject just you know move right. on to somebody else and that kind of thing right right it reminded me i read a uh, quote the other day and there was something it said if you want to if you want to increase your success rate then you need to increase your failure rate you know mm-hmm. like just constantly constantly going out like you said trial and error figuring out what works seeing what doesn't work and and 
not being pushy, sort of adding to the conversation, you know, or just going out to support people. And I think that if people see you out there supporting them at their shows and, you know, and, and having fun at their yeah. shows. And then after the show, just introducing yourself and leaving it at that. And if you like them, then go see him again and go see him a fourth time. And then like, Oh man, that guy's, totally. that guy's here again. He's, he's, you know, let me talk to this guy versus, you know, Hey, can I get a gig? <laughs> oh, totally, man. And then, you know, you listen, I it, go into jam sessions and stuff like that. We try to sit in and be with band. I used to have to, you know, go 10 times before anybody would let me sit in. Right. You know, they don't trust you. They're not just going to let a stranger sit in and that kind of stuff. So you got to just, you got to just be patient and mm-hmm. it's a slow process. But if you, you know, if you put up with that stuff and do the right thing, eventually something will happen. Eventually something will happen. What was, what, yeah. for you, what was, what do you think was the big uh, sort of changing point in, in your career? Like, was there, was there a pivotal thing that happened for you? Was it, was it? Yeah. There was something? Yeah, for sure. Let's talk um, about that. Okay, cool. So I met this guy named Kevin Gilbert. Mm-hmm. I, I think this is the, my break, my big break in the business. I, I think so. Mm-hmm. Um, and it all became from schmoozing. It all goes back to me schmoozing and meeting people and handing out business cards and all that kind of stuff, being in, being in front of people. Um, I'll take a quick step back. I met this drummer and I wish I could remember his name because I would really give him a hug if I ever met him again. I, would, I met him once at a gig and I went to his house. He sort of lived near where I lived and I went to his house once and we sort of kept in touch. And he was just another working drummer in LA doing, trying mm-hmm. to do the same thing I was. Mm-hmm. And, um, one day he calls me and he says, I, there's a blues gig happening at a local ski resort, this place called mountain high. Uh, it's about 45 minutes or so up in the mountains of LA. And, uh, he couldn't do the gig. It wasn't for, it wasn't for money. It was for free ski t- uh, lift tickets. And it sounded fun. I didn't have a gig that weekend and I love skiing. So I said, sure. And it was quick, you know, it, was, it was, wasn't far to get to. It was a quick drive. Right. right. So I took the gig and he goes, and it's a cool, it should be a cool gig because the guys putting on the show have a company in Los Angeles that does all the wiring for a lot of the major studios in town, Ocean Way and all these other huge places. They build the patch bays and they wire up the consoles, and all this kind of stuff. And because they do this, they know a lot of big time players and producers. They invited all these people up to this gig it could be a huge jam session with a lot of stars <laughs> and i said right. okay cool cool i'll be there and he told me who they yeah cool i'll be there so i went with uh, my girlfriend who is my wife now same girl tiffany and um the only people that showed up of all these stars quote unquote that they invited up were kevin gilbert and his then girlfriend cheryl crow and it was before <laughs> she was the it was before she was famous all i wanted to right. do is have some fun cheryl crow they were dating for a while at that time kevin uh was in a band or had a project called toy matinee. They made one record and it was, uh, it was total muso art, Rocky kind of record, killer stuff produced by this guy named Bill Bottrell, big famous producer did Madonna and Michael Jackson and all kinds of other huge stars. Mm -hmm. And it was a great record. I was a huge fan as I saw them play live twice. So I knew who Kevin was and was a fan of his music and toy matinee never really got, didn't really expand much as far as its reach outside of California, but in LA, it was, it was big. He was on a lot of local morning radio stations and everybody knew who Kevin was and, you know, all this kind of stuff. I saw him at the Roxy theater and all kinds of stuff. So I was a fan. Um, and so, uh, he was at the, I met him at the ski resort and we started talking and he was a big progressive rock head like me. And we started talking about Genesis. Genesis was my favorite band growing up as a kid. And I was a huge Phil Collins fanatic as growing mm-hmm. up, he's by far my favorite drummer. So we just talked and he sat in with the band and the band wasn't very good. And so I, you know, and we skied and, and partied a little bit, but you know, I met the guy. And so, um, his studio was in Pasadena, which was not far from where I lived. <coughs> and, um, I tried to keep in touch, but didn't really hear from him. And then in November, the following November, I met him, I guess it was January ish, the following November, there's a f- progressive rock festival in LA, which I didn't even know. Progressive rock was dead in the mid early nineties. It was mm-hmm. no one really talked about it. the grunge was coming up and it was sort of a dead medium. Right. But this festival was there that I didn't even know was happening. And it was the 20th anniversary of the Genesis record. The lamb lies down on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Kevin wanted to play the whole record for this festival to celebrate the anniversary. He remembered that I was a Genesis head and all this kind of stuff. And he called me because that and asked me if I wanted to, do the gig. And I said, well, totally. Cause I wanted to play with this guy big time. Right. 
And I showed up for the rehearsal. We only did one rehearsal in that record. I mean, I, I had something going for me. I mean, I knew that records even, you know, 15 years later, I still knew it note for note. Right. I played that shit all the time <laughs> growing up as a kid. I had that right. stuff really memorized. So I kind of, I mean, I nailed it mm-hmm. and we did the gig. It turned out really fun. It was great playing with him. I got to know him a little bit and he's an amazing musician. And, um, from there he offered, he asked me to join his band thud. He had a record called thud and he was starting to tour and really for meeting him and him finally calling me to do this gig. I went from just being hustling around LA and being a working guy doing cover gigs and weddings and all the usual stuff mm-hmm. and trying to meet people to all of a sudden being in a group or, you know, in a different crowd of people right. doing all the major things. Mm-hmm. major producers, major record companies, major this, all of that stuff, just really in a chance meeting of this dude at a local ski resort because this one guy couldn't do the gig and asked me if I wanted to. Nice. So, I mean, it's, and that really was my break. So from uh, meeting Kevin, all of a sudden I was hanging out with all these other people. Mm-hmm. His, the, the guy who played drums on the Toy Matinee record is a guy named Brian McLeod. You ever heard of Brian? Mm. Why does that name sound familiar? He's played on a million. It's amazing. It's amazing. Not everybody knows who he is. He should be a household name because he's played mm. on a million records and a lot of the number one hits. He was all, he was played drums for all of Cheryl's stuff. And maybe he was in a bunch where, of bands. Maybe that's because I had, uh, Jim Bogus on, uh, who's in counting crows now, but he was with Cheryl Crow before. And I feel like, yeah, we talked about, I feel like he and I had talked about Brian or something like that. I feel like Probably, that's, yeah. maybe that's where maybe that's where I heard his name. He was a songwriter in, for her as well. He wrote a bunch of mm-hmm. the tunes along with her and Kevin. And uh, Brian was also Brian was in Tears for Fears mm. and did uh, the Elemental tour and played drums on the Raul and Kings of Spain record. Mm-hmm. Well, at that time, um, Brian and myself and Kevin started a little side pro- project called Caviar. I was playing bass and other instruments and stuff. And it was just kind of weird nine inch nails, sort of rock crazy thing. <laughs> and, uh, we, we started recording some songs and Brian and Kevin were really getting into it. It was a lot. It was fun music to do for sure. Right. And, um, the tour at time to came up, the time came to tour for the Raul and Kings of Spain record. Brian didn't want to do the tour. He wanted to try and keep, get this band to the next level or do something else with the band. So he recommended me to Roland Orzabal, and I got the gig in Tears for Fears without an audition, like sight on scene. Brian said, "You got to hire the get this guy." Nice. So I mean, all of, so just that. So all of a sudden, I had the biggest gig of my entire life, you know. And um, so from there, I got the I got to record with Genesis because Kevin <coughs> told me about Phil Collins leaving, and he wrote a personal letter to Peter Gabriel because he thought they were going to reunite, and they should hire, they should let me audition, and that's how I got in, and and got my got to play on the record so again i'm rambling a little bit but it was all because i met kevin at a local ski resort um by chance you never know so, you know you, you never know you, you and never it's know. all because i was out there schmoozing and meeting everybody and just trying to you know get my name and face out in front of all kinds of people and uh, the smallest thing could be one of the biggest things in your career you, you, it's just that's yeah. how it happens you know talk talk to me about getting getting picked to uh to do the next Genesis record. Was that like, well, I mean, yeah, it was totally <laughs> surreal and bizarre because, you know, I grew up, you just think of whatever your favorite artist and favorite band is. Right. And then you replace that person in the band. It's, I mean, it's, uh, that wasn't going to happen. Phil Collins was in Genesis from 1970 all the way up till, uh, you know, it was, this was 1996 or seven at the time, 97. And, right. You know, there is Genesis is Phil Collins is Genesis, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But they decided to try and make a record without him. And um, I was in London doing a Tears for Fears gig and I found the management office and I went there and I brought my band Spock's Beard. We had our first CD. So I brought a CD and I invited everybody to the Tears for Fears gig. And I said, if there's any possibility I could get an audition, because I heard Phil quit, I would love an audition. And they said, great. I don't think anybody came to the Tears for Fears gig. And, and then Again, about maybe four or five months later, after I was back off the road on a Sunday morning of all things, Nick Davis, their producer, called, said, hi, this is Nick Davis from Genesis. How you doing? And I go, what? <laughs> Who's this? And uh, again, another guy named Nick. And um, he asked me to send him some more stuff that I played on, not just the Spock's Beard record. So I sent mm-hmm. him a bunch of stuff I'd done with, <coughs> excuse me, 
<coughs> a bunch of stuff I had done with Kevin and a few things I had at the time on a DAT tape of all things when nice. DAT was still around. Yeah. And um, sent it off to him. And then they called me back and flew me to London to audition, uh, to England to audition to their studios. And it's like, oh my God. So I walk into the farm, which was this kind of, you know, place I'd only seen in pictures and where they recorded their records and all their golden platinum records are all over the wall. And I walk in and Tony Banks and Mike Rutherford are there. And I'm going, <laughs> what am I doing here? This is so weird. <laughs> and I got to jam with these guys. Then, That's then I flew home after, and they, they called me back and said, yeah, we want you to record on the record. And I'm going, what? It, it, you know, it's totally bizarre that my name is on a Genesis record as a drummer. Just never in my wildest dreams that right. I think that was even, I never even thought that, that was never a goal of mine or anything like that. So it was really so weird. Amazing. So um, amazing. Yeah. The record didn't do well for them, unfortunately. Cause I mean, I think it was just hard to replace Phil Collins, especially right. in the vocal side of things. Sure. Sure. Um, I, that's uh, what I was going to ask you that, you know, I'm sure they toured to support the record, right? Well, but it was very short lived. Yeah. Um, there was two drummers on the record, me and a guy named near Z, you know, right. near. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, Near was part of the management company and stuff. And so they picked him to do the tour, which is fine. Um, and they had a plans to do a big elaborate tour, but it was just, it wasn't well received and there was, there was no ticket sales and stuff. So they did a smattering of gigs in Europe and that was it. Hmm. And just kind of closed, closed the book on that. And then they reunited, you know, later on and did a whole other thing. But, um, right. the tour didn't, you know, it just didn't, it was just too tough to replace Phil Collins I mean, those are, for, for fans of Genesis. Yeah. I, I think, it's one thing I think it's one thing if you're re replacing a just a drummer in a band but but Phil was so I mean he was so 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 much in the forefront of that with the vocals and his playing style and all that it's yeah. sort of like trying to take like Carter Beaufort out of Dave Matthews band or something like that like he like they're right. so unique you know like you could probably put a new drummer in I don't know I don't want to offend anybody so I'm not going to name a band but you know, there's a lot of bands out there. You could replace the drummer and never know, I think. Yeah. But there are some guys yeah. like Phil Collins. It's just it's big shoes to fill. It's the sound. It's the vibe. And yeah, all of that stuff, especially mm -hmm. the voice, especially the voice. I mean, his, yeah. his, his voice was just so unique. And, and that was everybody, everybody knew. They thought the word when they thought of the band Genesis, they thought of his voice really even over his drumming. Right. So, um, well, who was singing later? Who on. was singing and replacing? Or, in, in, <clears> they got uh, a guy by the name of Ray Wilson, an English dude was in a band called Stiltskin, I think, or whatever. And, mm -hmm. um, guy, nice guy, good voice. And, uh, um, he sort of made a career out of being in Genesis for one record. Um, but, uh, that's who they got, hmm. you know? And so he just he, immediately, everybody was comparing him to Phil Collins. Right. Yeah. I don't think, I think it was, it's, it's sort of a bummer for him, really. Yeah, you, could, you know, I, you couldn't catch a break. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, that's. It reminds me of uh, uh, who was it? Uh, Craig Blundell when he joined. Uh, I don't know why I can't think of the name of the band. Oh, Steve Wilson, or Stephen Wilson. Yeah, and they were sort of he same thing. He was like, I was always getting compared, and then, but after a while, like they they brought him in, and we're like, okay, he's part of the band, you know, but in right. the beginning, it was, it was a little hard, you know, and, and I can imagine sure. fans, fans are used to hearing a particular thing, and then now it's something new, and, and people don't, people right. don't like change. I know. It's like, people do, what are you going to do? <laughs> right. <laughs> totally. Right. Which, I mean, I understand, too, on the other side of it, bands that I'm yeah. actually just a fan of, and you go to see them, and you're like, this isn't even like two of the guys are the same. It's not even the same right. band that it used to be. It doesn't feel the same. Doesn't sound the same, you know, but, uh, so talk, talk to me about the formation of, of Spock's beard and how you guys really, I mean, you guys built that band into, a, into, you know, a big band. What, what, what was the, thing, yeah. yeah, it was a, it was a thing. It's still a thing. What, what was the, uh, sort of what, what was the idea behind it when you guys started? Well, I'm again, it, it all stemmed from me going to a jam session and, mm -hmm. uh, I got the, the universal bar and grill in studio city, California mm -hmm. on, I think it was Monday nights. They had a blues jam and, uh, just went there and you had to put your name on a board and, you know, to kind of sign up and they would just call people randomly to come sit in and play a tune. Mm -hmm. So, um, they called me and Neil and Alan Morris and, uh, we played together and I think we were all really drunk and, you know, I played some Jimi Hendrix tune or something. Right. Um, I don't think it was very good, but <laughs> we just sparked up a conversation after we were done. And, um, 
uh, Alan, Neil's brother, was putting together a networking jam session at a rehearsal studio a few days later. Invited a bunch of musicians, and you'd kind of just you know, play a song in one room and then go to the next room and just meet people, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was the first one of those I'd ever really been to, like during the day, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> right. So you had like actually wake up and do stuff. And, uh, but then we met some people. Then um, Neil told me that uh, he had written a bunch of progressive rock and they were looking to start a band. I mean, his brother were looking to start a band. And I go, this is 1990, 1990, 91. Mm-hmm. Like progressive rock, who's playing progressive rock anymore? I mean, it's fine by me because I, you know, I grew up with that kind of music. Right. But um, so he gave me a cassette of what, what ended up being our first record, "The Light." It was all the songs demoed out. All the drums were programmed on a cheesy old drum machine and stuff, and it was amazing sounding for what it was. And so we got together one day, the three of us, with a different bass player than we had a different bass, bass player at the very beginning, mm-hmm. and um, it just sort of gelled immediately because um it was just a lot of fun and uh playing music that no one else was really playing so we had what the heck and it it took a number of years to get some momentum going we did a few gigs you know and then alan who was the only one that really had a job out of everybody put up a little bit of cash we can make the first record and then we ended up playing that same festival i did with kevin just a couple years later called prog fest we got to play and um Again, not realizing that there, there was even progressive rock fans out there. There was a and uh, people signing bands and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. We played there, and that's where we met our record label guy named Thomas Faber, who owns Inside Out Music in Germany. And it really sort of took off from there. We just never mm-hmm. really realized that this was there wasn't even a scene, you know, right, right, and for that style. And uh, we were just doing it for ourselves for fun. And it was fun to hang out with the guys; they're great musicians and very talented and. Um, and it just sort of kind of took off right after that. Yeah. And you figured you're just playing some music that you like and oh, all of a sudden there's Yeah, I'm trying to do whatever, you know, again. Yeah. It was just another th- there was something else to do. Um and I wasn't really in very in very many bands so to speak. I was in some cover things and just trying to do this that and the other and meet people and this was sort of a little bit more organized, you know, and they had a mm-hmm. they had a a vision playing this stuff you know it wasn't mm-hmm. just sort of like trying to throw stuff against the wall and saw what stick it was just no we're gonna do this see what happens i said okay cool right didn't take up that much time at the very beginning and then once we saw that there was something there and then we got offered a record deal it's a very small one they offered a little something to make a record and go tour over in europe it's like oh mm-hmm. my god really okay cool let's do it nice yeah are you would you would you consider yourself are you are you a band guy or are you a sideman guy or are you okay with both I'm okay with both. Yeah. Definitely okay with both. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I've done both my whole career. So. Right. Yeah. yeah I, do, cause I love a band, especially if it's, if it's what, if the band is well run and everybody gets along, which is tough, you know, especially if you're in bands for a long time, shit mm-hmm. happens. Um, yeah, of course it's, it's, it's still cool because it's like all for, it's like, you know, you're part of a gang. You're, it's all for one and one for all kind of a thing. When you're a side man, which I've done, you know, I did tears for fears for 15 years and, other things like that. That was cool too. Um, mm-hmm. But you're there to do a job necessarily. You're not part of the writing of the music or the business side of the band. You're just there to do your thing, make the band sound as good as you can and then go home. Mm-hmm. And so I'm good with both. I'm, I'm definitely good with both. Yeah. I think and, uh, there's pros and cons, you know, as you know, yeah, that totally. you can have all, the part, the part that you're part of the band and you're, writing the music and handling the business and all that kind of stuff. Like you take it home with you, you know, you lose sleep over it. There's all these other things, but if you're a side man and the phone rings and you can just go and do the gig and then whatever happens happens and you can leave and go home and sleep well and not have to worry about it. So there's definitely pros and cons on, on both sides. For sure. I think that just the side man thing, you don't know necessarily know where the next gig's coming from. Right. That's what I was going to ask you you about. Yeah. You got to, it's a, it's again, it's a, you never stop looking for the next thing. If you're speaking about sideman stuff, right? You never stop looking for the next thing, even mm-hmm. when you're really successful. I was just hanging out with Rich Redmond here at our Gear Fest a couple of weeks ago, and you know, and he mm-hmm. is, he is the king of country music drumming, right? He's in all right. the big bands and playing with all the big artists, and he's doing really well for himself, and it's fantastic. But he never stops, you know, right. finding the next thing. Mm-hmm. He's not. He's not relying that Jason Aldean is going to have a big tour coming up. Jason Aldean's rich and can do whatever the heck he wants. And if he wants to take three years off, he'll do it. 
right. and then Rich would be out of a gig. So Rich is like, you know, pumping it and always working and doing side stuff. And so even if you're if you're successful and you already have big gigs, you never stop looking for the next one because you just know you never know when you're right. a side man. Right. Um, so that's that, that's what it's all about. You got to just keep keep the keep the the fire going, even if you land a good gig. Mm-hmm. I think th- yeah. I, I use Rich as an, as, as an example a lot because, like you said, he I mean, he's been with Jason Aldean since the beginning. So that's what, f- 18 years or something like that. I mean, he's been with him for a right. really long time. And right. the the fact that he is constantly hustling, he's like, you know, he wrote a book and he's speaking and he's doing clinics and he's doing other gigs and he has other projects. And I think most people look at that and say, well, yeah, of course he can do all that because he's Rich Regiment. I'm like, no, he he is Rich Redmond because he does all that. You, you know, bet. like he constantly yeah. is. I was just texting with him this morning, actually. Uh, but like, same deal. Like, always, always hustling, and not in a bad way, but just like you gotta, you gotta keep, you gotta keep it yeah, going bit, all the time. Yeah, and you gotta treat it like a business too. So you gotta, um, and and again, if you you know you gotta, you know, I'm, we're all getting older. I don't know how mm-hmm. old Rich is, but we're all getting older, mm-hmm. and. Um, you got to plan for the future, you know, and save mm-hmm. your money and all that kind of stuff. You don't want to grow old without any cash in the bank and all those kinds of things. Right. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's, you got to just be smart about it and, and just, and, and kind of a little bit never stop if you, if you can balance, get a balance in your life with it. You got to mm-hmm. just keep going. Right. Yeah. Do you have, where you're at now, do you feel like you've, you found that balance because you're, you're still touring, you're doing stuff with Sweetwater? Do you do you feel like you're in a, you're in the the spot that you wanted to be where you're sort of everything is balanced for you? Uh, sometimes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, not not a hundred percent. I don't feel I've achieved everything I'm been brought here to achieve quite yet. Interesting. Musically, um, um, I'm totally blessed and completely thankful, and I've done a lot of great things. Don't get me wrong. Um, I am. And I've done a lot more things than a lot of musicians will ever have a chance to do. So I, and I get that. I'm totally, uh, I'm very thankful. I just think that I haven't quite made the, the, put the stamp on my career totally yet, you know, and, and then a lot of it comes from me learning. And I, 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 I sort of feel that I've sort of peaking. Um, well, not, I haven't peaked yet, but I sort of, I'm, I'm sort of at my best musically right now. You know, um, mm-hmm. all of that stuff I've done prior in my career, even though I think a lot of it is really great and I have a lot of proud moments in my musical career. I think once I got into my forties and stuff, and even a little later, I mean, I really started finding me and mm-hmm. what I'm capable of that kind of stuff. Right. So I just don't think that I've, I've quite made it, made that impact yet. Right. Um, if I never do, that's fine. I mean, cause I've had a great career and I'm not going to poo poo any of it. Mm-hmm. I just don't think I've quite gotten everything done yet you know what i mean what do, what does that look like for you what does that stamp look like or that exclamation point uh, uh being more of a solo artist putting my music out there and reaching people with the music that i create mm-hmm. um and uh uh you know and as setting up my family financially a little bit better you know right. um making that kind of the real parts of life i want to have more uh solid more grounded more uh um, make sense? Uh, yeah, it totally makes sense. The right answer, but it's that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, well, I, I think the, the, the thing that is important to, to note here is that from the outside, a lot of times we look at someone who's a professional musician and we say, okay, well, oh yeah, they're just, they're a drummer or they're a bass player or they're whatever, but we're all people too. So we're all, you know, oh, yeah. we're, we have families and, and like you said, finances and all these other all these other things that everyone else has in their life. Like we still have to do those things too. Like, you know, we still go grocery shopping and all this stuff. So there's like, I think for some reason we, we tend to think that people who work in particular fields don't have all of those ancillary things that people with a quote unquote nine to five job have. And I think sometimes they might even have more of those, you know, just because it's so, um, so unpredictable a lot of times, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, why, why does it, I, this is what I feel anyway, and, and you may think differently, but to me, it seems like people don't want to talk about that stuff, you know, maybe because it's not sexy and it's not cool, but like, you know, no one wants to talk about like 
running your career like a business or, you know, how to, how to make sure that you have quote unquote mailbox money coming in or making sure that your, your finances are taken care of for, with your family or making sure that, you know, you're balancing your health and all of these other things, uh, right. in tandem with your, with your music and, you know, but everyone, uh, not everyone, that's a, that's a overestimation, but, but a lot of people are so myopic where they're like, nope, just drumming. That'll just take care of everything. And it won't, it just, that's not real. It's not reality. Totally. And, yeah. You gotta, there's, yeah, there's a lot that goes into everything for sure. But what's if your it was, take? So if, it was, if, if, if it was that easy, everybody would do it. You know, that's that, that old saying. So it's, of course. Um, it's not that easy. It's really not that easy. You got to put in the effort with your, with your actual instrument and what you're trying, your voice. And you got to put in a lot of work with that. And then you have to put on a lot of work with trying to get the work. Then you got to put in a lot of work with trying to keep the work. And then if you have a relationship, you got to put in a lot of work with that. I and mean, you know, that there's a whole other side of life there. I have two kids, you know, that I've raised and that takes more time than music, you know? So how do you balance that out to, to still put in what you want to put in to, to the effort you want to put into your, your music and your art while balancing your home life. I mean, it's a, it's a lot and, mm-hmm. uh, it's not always easy, you know, but, um, you just got to look at the, what good it can come out of both things. And there's a lot of good. So you just got to be patient and, uh, and, uh, those things should happen if you, if you're smart. Have you seen the new Promark select balance? So Select Balance gives the drummers the ability to fine-tune a standard stick model to fit their playing style. Let me give an example. If you play rock or country or metal, then you can use the Promark Forward Balance. It gives you enhanced power and speed. But if you play jazz and funk and gospel, then you can use the Rebound Balance. And it gives you rear-weighted balance to give you better finesse and more agility. The best part is they're made by Promark. They control the entire process from the forest to the finished drumstick, which means you get unmatched level of quality and consistency. Plus, they're always paired by weight and by pitch, so you know that there is zero guesswork when you're grabbing that stick out of your bag. Check them out by going to Promark.com. I've been checking out the new Sonar SQ-1 kits, and they are sick. You know who else thinks they're sick? Chris Coleman. I'll let him take it from here. When I hear something inside of me, I have to get it out. I have to get the sound that's within me out. Whatever I'm feeling in the moment, I go for it. And I may create something fresh and new for me. Something I may change about it, something I may not. I'm just going with the flow. Sonar's done it. SQ1, my sonar drummer. Check them out. You dig them. Talk to me about, we've mentioned off air, um, about how you're working with Sweetwater now. Tell me about yeah. the role that you have there and w- sort of the choice to, to go and work with Sweetwater. Well, I was on the... I'll go from the beginning. I was on the road with a Cirque du Soleil show called Totem for almost five years, mm-hmm. right before Sweetwater. And it, that came about, you know, Tears for Fears wasn't really doing much. Uh, Spock's Beard was sort of at a lull, wasn't making money. I was just back hustling again, trying to make ends meet and all that kind of stuff. We had a little bit of a dip. The recession, I guess that was part of it too. My wife lost her job. It was uh, that sort of thing we were just like what the hell are we gonna do mm-hmm. so i auditioned i put in an audition video with cirque and landed a gig thank god because it came at just the right time finance with money wise we needed it big time but it was also a cool thing because we got to travel my wife and my two kids we we joined the circus we left and joined the circus and went toured the world with this amazing production yeah and i lucked i lucked out because the show cirque shows are really great all of them but sometimes the music can be really mellow especially in the drum chair Mm-hmm. So, but I, I lucked out because my show totem was all really sort of drum based. You know, I got to play really hard every day right. and I could, I could even change it up a little bit when I wanted to, too. And no one really, really noticed. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
it turned it, it ended up being a really great thing. My kids got educated through Cirque and got to live in all these different parts of the world and travel with people from 19 countries and learn different languages and cultures. And yeah, I mean, it was it was amazing experience. So, and what do they do? They just they do. Do you have to pay for your family to go, or they they just no, bring your whole family with? They've you? changed it now. The reason I left Cirque was because this benefit. Think of it as a benefit from your get your job, right? That benefit mm-hmm. they changed the benefit later on, but at that time, um. There was six or so shows like mine that toured around for Cirque. They have mm-hmm. different touring levels. But this kind of touring show, you camp out in each city from three months or more down to maybe six weeks. And then you mm-hmm. pick up, close the tent down, move to the next city, and do the same sort of thing. Right. And then we got uh, we got apartments, and my kids got schooled through Cirque. It was all part of the Quebec school system. So there was four teachers and 11 kids in school from first grade through high school. So it was wow. like Little House on the Prairie School. I mean, it was amazing. One-on-one tutoring for the kids kind of thing. Right. My kids got to go to school in the Royal Albert Hall in London for six months. That was their schoolhouse. Wow. Crazy shit like that. That's so amazing. It was a, I mean, it was an amazing benefit. You know? I love the story um, about Cirque, too, where he, I forget the guy's name who started it, but he was like, I want to do this thing. And everyone was like, you're an idiot. This is never going to work. You know, totally. Like, he was a street performer in Quebec, and he just turned it into this behemoth of a company. Yeah, it's massive. Yeah, totally. Now. Massive. So, to, you know, to make a long story shorter, um, that whole thing was going along. It was great. But then they started having some corporate, they, they lost their shirt on a couple of shows. Um, so they had maybe six or seven shows touring like mine. And they also had maybe six or seven shows that did total sort of rock and roll style touring where they were in each town, maybe two days. Those, those mm-hmm. shows didn't have families. That wasn't a benefit that they offered. Then they also had the permanent shows in Vegas and wherever else they had. So they had like 19 or 20 shows around the world going. It's crazy. They tried to open a permanent show in Los Angeles. They had Danny Elfman write the music for it and all this kind of stuff right in Hollywood on, on uh, Hollywood and Highland. The show mm-hmm. tanked. They lost really? like $500 million or something. Oh. Just they, they, they thought that they would get the tourist traffic, people off the street coming in to see the show every day. It was expensive. People didn't want to, you know, spend 150 bucks a ticket. Mm-hmm. So, that among other things, the show just never did didn't do well. So they lost a lot of money there. And then there was a couple other things that just weren't going well. So all that being said, they had it was time for corporate cutbacks. Right. And the biggest one of their corporate cutbacks was to close this family option, which meant the school was going to close and the housing wasn't going to be as cushy as it was, basically. Mm-hmm. And um so I could have kept my job. They didn't say you're losing your job. But you're gonna have to homeschool your kids, or figure out a way to school your kids, and then you're not gonna get as your part of your pay will have to go towards your housing for your family. When before they just paid for the housing for every for all of us, right? So, and you know, at that point, I had done the show fourteen hundred and twenty six times. Wow. I never missed a gig. I never missed a gig, and wow. that doesn't include rehearsals or dress rehearsals or anything. So I probably did right. a gig, you know, eight seventeen hundred times or something. Wow! And um, how, how many years? So, were, how know, many years is that? It was like four and four years and eight months or so. It's crazy. So, you know, that was my, it was sort of my ticket out, right? I had done mm-hmm. it enough and uh, definitely had the experience. Although they went to Australia right after I left for a year. So I bummed I missed that, but it's okay. So when the, when the time came to leave, um, I knew I was going to, my job was going to be ending at a certain date. And I think this was like in February or so January, they told us. And in July, beginning of July was going to be my last gig. So, um, I just started putting out the word, okay, my job's coming up and I need something to happen. And I had two options. Um, I auditioned for, through the bass player, Nick Beggs, who plays with Steven Wilson. I got a, an audition tape. Marco Miniman had left uh, Steven Wilson. And mm-hmm. I sort of uh, started talking to Steve and I auditioned via online and sent tracks back and forth and stuff. And I got offered the Steven Wilson gig. And then, nice. but then I also talked to the, my buddy Mark Hornsby, who is the own, is the director of the recording studios at Sweetwater here, and he asked me at what I f- consider maybe coming here to Sweetwater um, to be the house drummer and to maybe do other stuff in marketing. So I didn't know, so we looked into it, and um, after I talked to the family quite a bit about this, you know, um, I'm a fan of Stephen Wilson; it would have been killer to go record mm-hmm. with, uh, play with that guy, and he's obviously exploding as an artist. Right. Um, but my kids were going, well, if you take the, the Sweetwater gig, then you won't have to be gone for six, eight months at a time. Mm-hmm. My kids were just starting high school. You know, that kind of got me a little bit in the gut. Okay. I get it. You know, 
do I want to? Because earlier on when the kids were young, you know, I was touring with Tears for Fears a ton. I'd be gone for a lot of, I missed a lot of birthdays and anniversaries and all that stuff when the kids were young. And, right. And so, you know, I don't want to ramble on here, but we decided to take the Sweetwater gig and not do the Stephen Wilson thing. Got you. And um, so we packed up and moved to Fort Wayne, Indiana. Wow. And it was cool. It was a tree, you know, it was a, it was a trippy thing to do, go to like a company and do a gig. But, um, in the end, it was the best, the best decision I made for sure. Cause a lot mm-hmm. of great things have come from here. And this company is absolutely exploded even in the five years that I've been here. Yeah. Um, but my, so my job was being house drummer. Mark was trying to build a sort of muscle shoal sort of team in the recording studios. Mm-hmm. There was always been recording studios here, but they were always sort of like a regional small thing. And Chuck Surak, our owner, told Mark, listen, I want you to try to turn this thing into a real, a real commercial, you know, world-class sort of place. Right. And that was Mark's idea. So bring in players, a team of players, producers, engineers, and everything all in-house. Mm-hmm. And that's what he did. So I'm the house drummer. That's awesome. I engineer a little bit too. And then, so the other side of the company, so half and half. So, so, so that Mark wasn't going to be my boss because we're by old buddies. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm. I work in marketing too, and that's where the you know the how-to videos and the drum reviews and the the gear reviews came into being. So right. half my job is in marketing, half my job is in the uh, in the recording studios. It's kind of like it's kind of the dream gig, right? <laughs> I mean, it's not bad. Well, you know, listen, I play. If if you don't mind going to work at a at an office every day, which I mean, I'm, I'm spoiled like rotten here because i have my own room and stuff to do make my music and stuff but i play with drums and gear that's my job right every day i don't have to sell the gear which is great that's a different thing which Mm -hmm. i don't think i would be very good at um so those guys that work and sell the stuff here they bust their buns and uh it's a hard job yeah Uh, they make good money if you sell you make great money but it's a hard gig Mm -hmm. um i just i get to play with all this stuff um and it's, yeah, so it's super cool. And now the recording studios have exploded too in, in these five years. So I get to do all kinds of sessions with all kinds of big artists. And we also get to make records for people that may never had a, the opportunity to make a record on their own before. You know, we'll help people write mm-hmm. songs, arrange songs. They get to use all these pro players in a world-class facility for, for a decent rate. You know, so again, a awesome. lot of people have their dreams come true. They never, that would, you know, get out of their, out of their bedroom and make a record with a bunch of pros that they may never had a chance to do before. So there's a lot of good benefits that have come from it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, so it was a good decision. I think, it, I think it's important to note too, that there are, you know, all of these companies that are out there, Sweetwater, you know, and every, well, whatever, any other company that's out there, yeah. they are, they're a business and they look for people just like any other business. So they need accountants, they need graphic designers, they need, you know, they need product specialists, they need, artist relations people, they need marketing people, all of that stuff. You bet. And yep. I think there's there's always this this uh this sort of mysticism about how do you get a job in a you know for a drum company. And it's like, well, a lot of a lot of the stuff happens internally, like the way that you got this gig with Sweetwater, but you start making enough you start building enough relationships if you have the skill sets, then you can get a job for any of these companies. You can go work for DW or Sonar or somebody like that. And you bet. so I think I think that just, you know, throwing your hands up and saying, oh, it's impossible. It's this impenetrable wall and I can never get a, a gig or a job working at one of these companies, I think is, is foolish. I think it's foolish to think that way. Yeah. And what I've learned big time since I've been here, you know, I've made great relationships with every manufacturer that, that, that we work with, drums or otherwise. Right. You know, there's a lot of ways to make a living in the music business that doesn't necessarily have to be uh relying on making music or playing music to make your living. There's a mm-hmm. lot of other ways to do it. And you're right with the inside a, a manufacturer or in a vendor or with a retailer, there's lots of ways to, 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 uh, earn some cash. Mm-hmm. And, uh, while you're still playing, you know, and that stuff can still happen, but there's, if you're creative, there is definitely ways to do, to make some money. And now with YouTube and all these YouTube influencers and all that kind of stuff that's going on too, there's even that road. If you can break into that low, that uh, mm-hmm. road too. So there's all kinds of options out there. And, um, and some of these companies out there are doing such great things. It's amazing, you know, and it, it's, it, you can be really creative in that, that side of the music business too. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's interesting, man. Um, and I've never, I played Mapex drums and, 
Aquarian heads and minor symbols and all the and uh, Vic Firth, my whole professional career, although I was a Piesty guy at the beginning for a, for a few years. And I never had the opportunity to play any of these other drums because, A, I didn't need to. Mapex was really good to me throughout my career, and they made great drums too. So I didn't need to go anywhere else, and I, I like to be loyal, and um, mm-hmm. they, were, they, they spoiled me like rotten. But now that I came to Sweetwater, so I had, you know, um, I have to kind of sell or, you know, push everything all the vendors that we carry. But it's been a killer education because I never really got to sit and, and learn about sonar drums. Or I right. never got to dig deep into DW or Tama. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think I ever played Tama just because I never really had the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And all these, so it's been super fun to learn the culture of these companies, to get behind their gear, why they make the gear the way they do. I just made a video today before I got on the phone with you with ANF. Just mm-hmm. played this brass yeah. Royal ANF drum kit. That was fucking awesome. Yeah. So, um, just all those kinds of things are so cool. Even all the symbol manufacturers and, and, you know, just kind of get into why they do what they do and, and why they're successful and even some of the boutique guys. So it's been a killer education and there's some amazing gear out there. And, um, it's, uh, it's just been a super fun byproduct of having this gig. Mm-hmm. Especially like, I, I don't know how you are, but if you're, you know, if you're a gearhead, then it's, it's the ultimate gig for sure. For sure. Yeah, especially and with, with the job that I have, being able to, you know, use these products in the recording studio a lot. You know, they send us stuff to use all the time, mm-hmm. and um, so we have a, our drum room in the collection. Of the drum is just ridiculous. So we're going to do a session for somebody, and we're going, what what kit am I going to use today? I don't know. Maybe I'll bring out the, uh, the you know, whatever whatever it is, the, right. the Pearl Masters Maple Gum or this or that or you know whatever, and um, they're into sending stuff to try and. Uh, it's, it makes it really interesting. Nice. What, yeah. what do you think, how have you been transitioning or how have you transitioned moving from LA to Fort Wayne? Like I've, so I moved from the East coast to Northern California now to Southern California. And, and it's, it's hard. It's hard to make those transitions yeah. because you have, you know, no family, no friends, you have no network. Uh, and, and a lot of us musicians move to different towns all the time. What's your advice for sort of like getting, getting into the, the fabric? Luckily, I had my buddy Mark here and, some, uh, and, and a couple of the people that I knew um, from doing sessions with Mark when he lived in Nashville and stuff. So it wasn't that I moved here knowing nobody. So that mm-hmm. helped. But really, he was the only person we knew. And, you know, Fort Wayne, it's a nice small town, a lot of great things about it. But it's the Midwest, born and raised in Southern California, big city, all the options, mountains, beach, all that kind of stuff to all of a sudden being in rural Midwest with farmland everywhere. It's definitely different. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's still, it's still not home to me, even though it's a great small town and it's booming and lots of great things. People are nice. My kids are, my kids are really thriving here with what they did through high school and they're in college now and all that kind of stuff. So I have nothing really bad to say about it other than it's just, you know, I just miss where I, where I was comfortable. You know, mm-hmm. and yep. I miss going to Dodger. I miss going to Dodger games, <laughs> right? <laughs> Things like this, and um, the weather. If the weather, I just wish the weather was not. It's it's crazy here. The weather's crazy here. It yeah. never. It's <laughs> it's never the same. It could be gorgeous one day. You know, the winters are, and you know, living where there's winter, real winter. Yeah. So um, they oh, definitely I came from have that, that man. here. I came from the East yeah. Coast. I get. I know oh, the winters. Let's go shoveling snow and, and snow plows and just you know nuts. That kind of stuff right. I never had to deal with prior to moving to living here. Mm-hmm. So, but you know, that's, that's small potatoes, really. It's a good town and it's, you know, I've, I've lived here almost five years. I've literally never sat in traffic. There you go. Not freaking once. Yeah. Um, it's that's crazy. A bonus. You know, that's a, that's At a bonus five o'clock right in the afternoon going down the highway, you're doing 80. It's my, maybe nice. about a little crowded, but you know, there's it's, <laughs> it's, it's that kind of stuff. Right. Um, I've wasted did, years of my life on the LA freeways, believe me. Yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm there now. Uh, yeah. So how do you, how, were there any things that you did to sort of like get acclimated? I mean, the nice thing is you have your, your wife and kids there too. So you, you know, yeah. you have your family. Um, so you're doing a lot of things together. Uh, but is there, is there anything, any tips or tricks that you, that you offer to people or that you suggest that people do when they're getting into a new town to like sort of get into the fabric of the community? Yeah, man, go out and uh, don't just stay at home. Go out yeah. and see what it's what's going on. Um, 
thankfully this town is thriving. You know, there's a lot of hipsters move in and, and made, moved in and made opened some nice farm to table restaurants. There's a lot of there's actually a lot of clubs and music going on here. So the stuff going on, so it made it uh, it made it better. There's there's right. some activity, some action, so to speak, mm-hmm. going on. So get out there and meet people and just uh, yeah, don't just stay home and yeah. sulk or or be bored. There, there's a, there's always something to do, even if that means going to church or whatever that is. You know, just getting out into the world and into the into your community. There's stuff to do. There's mm-hmm. no reason to if you move to a new town to not join in. You know yeah. what I mean? Yep. Then you'll find, you'll meet people and you'll find what you like, what you don't like and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You can find your, you can find your tribe anywhere. You just have to, you got to. Totally. I mean, one yeah. cool thing with Cirque, what I realized, you know, it does, home is, you know, it's cheesy. It's a saying that's been around for a long time, but home is where the heart is. Just wherever you, wherever you hang your hat, that's where it's going to be. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and it, that could be anywhere. Yep. So, yep. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So if people want to sort of follow along with the stuff that you have going on, where's the best place to do it? I have my website, nickdevergilio.com. Uh, but I'm also doing a ton of stuff with my band, Big Big Train. So bigbigtrain.com. Um, uh, that band is exploding, and I'm super proud of that band and want to tell as many people as I possibly can because we are um, got our biggest tour ever coming up in October in the U.K., uh, nice. Our record came out in May. The Grand Tour hit number 33, 34 on the UK charts right out amazing. of the gate. It's amazing. Um, the band's doing really well. And we've got our first, we are coming to the States next year. Next May, we're playing a, play, uh, a festival called Roz Fest. And there's going to be a smattering of gigs after that. Coming to Sweetwater to do something too with the band. So I'm super excited about Big Big Train and, and totally happy. I'm working on a solo record. I'm almost done. I'm in the vocal stage now. So I got to, you know, hopefully it'll be done by beginning of August and trying to get released before the end of the year. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my, my website, I'll tell you all that. Um, my Instagram thing is NDV Music Farm and Facebook and all those usual things as well. And then Sweetwater. We're putting out videos all the time here at Sweetwater and uh, they can always come here and get in touch with me here too. Nice. And I'll link up to all this stuff yeah. in the show notes so that so that people can find you. And sure. dude, thank you one for uh, for taking the time to chat. I really do appreciate it. And two, I like this. I I like the, uh, a different lens on things and understanding. You know how many different how many different ways there are that you can, like you said, make a living working in music, whether it be touring all the time or touring sometimes and working with you know in other industry or not other industries, but working for a company or like you can figure out you can sort of pick and choose what you want to do and put it together and make a career for yourself, which, which you have done. And, and I think that's important for people to, to understand and to think about as they, as they move forward or that maybe they want to transition into working in music full time. It doesn't necessarily always have to be that you're on a tour bus or in the studio. There's a lot of other avenues. Yeah, you bet. You bet. So, and I appreciate it. So, well, thanks, man. I, uh, I appreciate your time and thank you again for taking time to chat. Pleasure, man. Thank you for hanging out with me while you're in freaking Hawaii. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no I problem. Would say go outside and enjoy the island. I'm going to. I'm going to. I got a All nice right. little. Uh, I got a nice little working spot outside, so I'm going to go go chill and do some work for a few hours, and then uh, then go relax. So, awesome. Okay. Good deal. Well, Nick, thank you again, man. I appreciate it, and hopefully we can connect in person here soon. That'd be awesome. Anytime. All right. All right, brother. Thank you.
there you have it. That was Nick DiVirgilio. And for all the show notes, you can go to drummersresource.com forward slash session 500, session 500. Also, if you want to enter the giveaway for all the great prizes that we're giving away for the 500th episode, including Dream Symbols and ProLogic's percussion pads and Big Fat Snare Drum and Evan's Drumheads and Promark Drumsticks and in-ear monitors from Ultimate Ears. And if I'm forgetting someone, I forget because I'm just saying it's all the top of my head. But needless to say there's a lot of great prizes from a lot of amazing companies you can enter to win by going to drummersresource.com forward slash giveaway that's drummersresource.com forward slash giveaway and until the next podcast keep drumming thank you so 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 much for listening i love you i appreciate you and i'll be talking to you soon peace